Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Policing, Incarceration, and Reform. My name is Jeff Lamsley, and today we'll be talking with Max Felker Cantor about his forthcoming book, Dare to Say No, Policing and the War on Drugs in Schools, which will be out with University of North Carolina Press in April of this year. Dr. Felker Cantor is an associate professor of history at Ball State University and author of the very important 2018 book, Policing Los Angeles, Race, Resistance, and the Rise of the LAPD, also published with UNC Press. Dr. Felker Cantor, welcome to New Books Network. Well, thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Awesome. So to begin with, we always ask us to tell the audience a little bit about uh, your background, especially how you came to study the history of policing. Yeah. So my route to the history of policing and interest in the history of policing really goes back to in roughly 2008, 2009, um, when I was in graduate school um, in Los Angeles, um, and I had been kind of thinking through broad questions about social movements um, in the 1960s and 70s in Los Angeles in particular as part of my graduate work. But through that process, I kind of started to think through how the the city was being policed as I traversed it myself, right? It kind of was something that I noticed, you know, like why as I traveled to different archives in particular in, in... kind of predominantly black or latinx neighborhoods in the city like why is the policing look different there than in other places right um and so kind of just being in los angeles got me thinking about policing um that was one piece of it but the other piece was that i was in graduate school right at the time when black lives matter kind of is on its very early origins so this question about policing police violence anti-police movements um in kind of the contemporary period in which I was living and writing was raising all sorts of questions, right, about policing in the past. So that was a kind of present day kind of thing that I was thinking about combined with this experience in Los Angeles, right? So those were kind of feeding off each other. And then for, you know, the other kind of piece of this that I always kind of mention when when I think about this question is that I was writing and starting the dissertation right at the time when Heather Thompson writes Why Mass Incarceration Matters, Khalil Muhammad right, writes, you know, Condemnation of Blackness. And so it was these kind of historiographic calls by some of those early works, you know, in, the, in terms of the history of the carceral state that were asking questions about, like, why haven't historians looked at policing in the 20th century or incarceration in the 20th century, post-World War II especially, in the same way that historians have looked at, say, convict leasing or things like that. And so this kind of historiographic piece got me thinking about questions about policing. Um, so, And then the kind of current day political context of Black Lives Matter, in addition to my experience in Los Angeles, it's kind of a three-part quest, three-part answer to the question about how I got interested in 
in policing. Um, and then obviously I was in Los Angeles and was really interested in interrogating the LAPD and using it as the kind of model or case study for, for investigating a lot of questions I had about policing. And as I was always kind of rooted in anti-police movements, right? I was always interested in that relationship between policing and and social movements. So, Great. And so this new project is about D.A.R.E., which is going to resonate with all readers because either they experience D.A.R.E. in their education um, or it's just a, sort of an important part of American culture more broadly as well. Um, how did you start thinking about this and how did you arrive at this project? Yeah, great question. Um, so D.A.R.E., as you said, is this kind of fascinating thing, <laughs> you know, if you grew up in the 1980s and the 1990s. Um, and really where it started, um, and I'll kind of come around to my own experience with this, is it actually started as I was finishing research for the book Policing Los Angeles. Um, I had an additional chapter that I was working on to add to the to the book manuscript, which was largely about policing and policing of youth in Los Angeles um, in the 70s and 80s. And through that research, as I was doing that, I came across in the archives, in the actually in the the Tom Bradley, the mayor of Los Angeles at the time, you know, in the seventies and into the eighties, in his archives, I found all these references to Dare, and I was like, "What is going on here?" Right? It raised this question because I was like, "I did Dare as a fifth grader." in Salt Lake City, where I grew up. And I was so so, so kind of surprised because I didn't know the history of where it had started, where it had, like, how it had spread. I was just like, oh, this is this thing we have in Salt Lake City, right? Um, and then I was like, okay, there's this archival trace in Los Angeles. And I there's a paragraph in Policing Los Angeles about D.A.R.E. Um, and it just kind of was in the back of my mind as I came to this next book and was like, well, okay, well, how did D.A.R.E. spread? Where did it start? How did, why was the LAPD at the start of this? And that kind of was the, some of those questions that came out of the archive that then connected with my personal experience. And then this whole generation, as you kind of mentioned, of the resonance of, of D.A.R.E. and like American society, culture, policing, all of these things um, that, that kind of spurred my interest as I finished the first book and was like, oh, I really want to think about this, this dare pro this dare program and police and education and all of that um, for this next project. And so it kind of grew out of a kind of mini archival find also with that kind of broader personal and kind of American kind of social and political history context of the, of the 80s into the 90s. Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating topic. I remember reading your first book, and it, that that paragraph about Dare stuck in my memory because I immediately thought, "Wow, what an interesting topic!" Um, I hope that this book comes out, and so uh, I know that a lot of people have been excited about this this project as they've heard about it in process along the way. Um, so let's get into the origin story of Dare itself a little bit. Uh, you write in the in the beginning of the book that Dare was a product of failure, meaning that the LAPD created it because they knew their attempt to stop the supply of narcotics as part of the war on drugs was failing. Can you give us a little bit on that origin story of Dare? Yeah, um, and I write about it in that way, right? As a product of of failure, in like in multiple ways, right? In some ways, we also have this kind of pro dare itself becomes a, a failure 
over the long term, which I'm sure we'll get to. But Dare starts, I mean, if we want to kind of set set the stage formally in 1983, um, it starts in the fall of 1983 as the first kind of semester in which Dare officers are going in the classrooms. But And it starts because Daryl Gates, the chief of police at the time, goes to the Los Angeles Unified School District um, in January of 1983 and sort of says, we haven't solved the, the youth drug problem and says we need some different solutions. And what he was referring to is that the LAPD for about a, a 10 years, uh, 10 year span of time prior to 1983 had been sending undercover officers into schools to arrest drug dealers. And so they're like, we're going to have an undercover operation. We're going to root out drug dealers from all these Los Angeles high schools and elsewhere. Um, and that's going to solve our drug problem. Um, it's going to stop kids from being able to buy drugs. We're going to like, that's the solution, right? And it was called the Undercover Buy Program. It starts in, in 1974, continues on, you know, as I said, for at least a decade, as well as into the mid-1980s. So it doesn't disappear when D.A.R.E. comes in. But what the LAPD had started to realize when they started looking at all this, these statistics, they're like, we're arresting all these drug dealers in schools or around schools. Um, we've targeted the kids, right, who are the who are buying drugs, right? Some of them get you know, arrested at times. And by the early 80s, they have all these statistics of like, look at all the drugs we've seized, the number of arrests we've made. But the statistics also show that youth drug use keeps going up. And so they're like, we basically, our supply side attempt to stop the supply of drugs in schools by targeting these dealers has totally failed. They're like, we, we this, this hasn't worked, right? And so they're like, we need an alternative. And it's part of this shift in kind of drug education, the war on drugs as, as well, where there's this kind of constant pull push between do we stop the supply? Do we try to deal with demand through prevention and education, right? And so then this is this renewed moment where Gates and the Los Angeles Unified School District kind of partner and they're like, let's develop this new program to stop the demand for drugs. And so they engage in a partnership starting in about January 83, where they develop a kind of substance abuse prevention program kind of template over the summer of 83, becomes named the DARE, DARE Project DARE um, for drug abuse resistance education. Um, with the kind of fundamental idea that we're going to use police officers as the teachers for this new program, right? And so that's this kind of moment where it's like where it's part of a failure of that previous previous strategy of undercover officers in schools, and now we're going to try to prevent drug use by teaching kids once a week in kind of a fifteen week series of uh, curriculum lessons led by police officers later expanded to 17 weeks, which is the kind of curriculum that becomes the popular one. Um, and so that's this kind of origin of D.A.R.E. where it's in interplay with the LAPD's kind of constant, we're going to rest our way out of the drug, the drug problem. And so it's this kind of alternative to that, right? And it's also framed, at least initially, as an alternative to how drug prevention was taught and developed in the past. So they're like, we're not just going to put up a sign with, you know, the pictures of all the drugs and teach kids how drug, what drugs do and all that. They're like, we're going to teach kids how to say no to drugs. So it's that like how to say no piece. And they're like, off police officers are the best ones to do that. And so that's kind of where this all kind of develops in this 
83 into 84, right, where kind of then becomes a full-blown program in the following year. And so that decision maps pretty well onto a broader theme sort of in the historiography of policing that folks who read a lot about it will be familiar with, which is that when when law enforcement has historically failed to solve some problem through their activities, instead of reimagining the approach, moving away from police-oriented solutions, historically we've tended as a society to double down on police-oriented solutions. And, and so I'm wondering if you see D.A.R.E. fitting into that broader historiographical theme in the same way as other, you know, doubling down on police solutions, but, or is it distinct in, in some way? Does it add something new to that analysis? Yeah, no. So I definitely see this, and I've written about this elsewhere, you know, in, in a number of ways in terms of the way re police reform expands police power. I think that's a kind of theme of a lot of my writing. So I've contributed to that, I think, in the historiography. But I think D.A.R.E. is part of that. This is this there's some sort of crisis, right? Look, this policing hasn't solved the problem. Um, the police are also under fire in, in LA in the early late 70s, early 80s. They're being critiqued by anti-police activists, right? Who I write about in my first book. So they're like, and they're waging this really aggressive war on drugs. So they're like, we've got a problem. We're like alienating all these kids. They, they hate us, right? All this stuff. So, so there's this crisis. We fail to stop drug use. There's the broader context of policing of the war on drugs, which we can talk about. But so it's that, and then this is this reform. It's like, we won't like address the fundamental issue of should the police be the ones, you know, teaching or doing any of these, um, waging the drug war, or should we do something different to wage the drug war? Instead, let's expand police authority to now be teacher. So I see it in that say in in line with that historiographic and a theme or intervention in which we say, like, look at these ways when when there's a call for a change or a, a reform to how the police operate, it doesn't always reduce or make the police any less powerful. But and the and the argument I make in the book that is different or um suggested I think Dare is a little different this way. Is that not only just expands police power in terms of like we see, you know, a lot of people have written about like coming out of the 1960s and the urban uprisings and rebellions in that era. It's like, well, look at how the federal government, the LEAA, right, all this money funnels to policing where they get new weapons, they use helicopters, all that sort of stuff. What I see here is that it actually expands the ability of the police to infiltrate schools and sort of these non-police institutions in sort of all sorts of new ways, right? So it's not just an expansion of resources or authority, but it, it expands the kind of scope of police um, in those areas, right? And so, and this, and the DARE officers are pre-school resource officers, right? So that stuff comes a little later. So DARE kind of sets, I think, the foundation for a lot of that in which we can see then like why do police become normalized in schools by the turn of the 21st century, right? Or, you know, especially into the 21st century. So I think there's a slight, you know, I'm trying to advance that a little bit too, while I'm still making this argument about kind of crisis reform and expansion of, of police power and authority. Yeah. And you do so extremely well throughout the book. Um, and one of those spots where I think it comes in most clearly is in how you write about D.A.R.E. officers themselves. And there's a whole chapter about them. Uh, and and they really are such a significant part 
of this whole story in a way that I certainly never realized in, in my sort of thinking about dare in my own life or in our culture, et cetera. Um, it, you write in the epilogue that dare, quote, dare in short, has become largely a delivery network of police officers rather than a unique curriculum developed by dare, end quote. And so it, it, it clearly the, the people are as important as the programming. So can you talk a little bit about why the officers themselves are so essential to the story? Yeah. So like dare the curriculum, right, as they developed it, they worked with school education specialist, a woman named Ruth Rich in particular from the LAUSD, Los Angeles Unified School District. And they worked in combination or in conversation with health prevention specialists and others. So like the curriculum we could talk about, but what they said fundamentally that was different about D.A.R.E. from the beginning through to like the points in the epilogue, which you're quoting, which is about D.A.R.E. in the present day in which we could say is 2023, 2024, is that the fundamental thing they always said was the unique thing about D.A.R.E. is that we use police officers as teachers. And they said that. And the reason why they did that, you know, obviously we can make the argument that it was really about getting police in schools in all sorts of ways, um, expanding the authority of police. Um, it's because they said, Police officers, veteran police officers in particular, have all this experience with the negative consequences of drug use on the streets. And they can tell those kids and have the kind of expertise and the legitimacy and the authority that the kids will listen to them. And at the same time, they're like, these kids, these, you know, and D.A.R.E. starts largely in fifth grade at this moment. It expands a little bit later. So fifth graders not that old. They're like, those kids are too savvy <laughs> in 1983, 84, that they won't believe their classroom teacher if they teach them about drugs. So we need a, a, a more kind of authoritative figure and who better than the police officer because they have all this experience, right? An expert, so-called expertise um, in being able to kind of convince kids of like, this is what's going to happen to you if you use drugs. So that's this kind of fundamental piece that allows them to claim the need to use officers in this program and why it's unique. And then it goes on to be about, the reason why I say that a DARE officer is so central is because then you can start to see that the DARE officers, yes, are teaching this, so this drug prevention curriculum that they've developed. But then if when you start to read all the, the sources and the literature affiliated with DARE, is they're like, well, it's also good to have D.A.R.E. officers in there because they can help reimagine the police officer um, in the minds of kids. So now kids can see the police officer not just as the person who is going to arrest them on the street, but as their friend, as their mentor, as a, as a kind of human being just like anyone else, right? And so they're like, it changes the relationship between kids and police. And they do that through all sorts of things because then they start to say, dare officers stay at the school during recess and they play with the kids during recess and they run clubs after school. Um, they participate in extracurricular activities with kids, right? So it's a whole thing about the ways um, that I write about it, that it's like it's getting in the minds of kids, the police line about drugs, but also the idea of the police as a legitimate 
Lisa as authoritative, as a as someone to be trusted, and as someone to listen to, right? So it's developing a kind of obedience to the police. Well, they never, well, dare, you know, uh, the the program and the, the officials never officially say we're trying to like make kids obedient to the police. Yeah. If you actually, you know, read it and analyze the, the, the sources, that's what's coming through, right? It's like, oh, it's really about getting this message into the minds of, and the heads of kids. Um, and they do talk about a lot. We want these D.A.R.E. officers to be friends and mentors. And then in a lot of the early evaluations of the program, one of the questions they're always asking is, did respect for police officers increase or decrease after D.A.R.E.? And so the, one of their metrics, right, of did this program work is did it increase respect for police? And they find at least early on that it, it you know, in some of these studies, they're like, oh yeah, now now these kids respect the police more. So we can start to see, as I talk about D.A.R.E., it's as much a police program as it is just a drug prevention curriculum, right? Or drug prevention program. But the whole logic underpinning that, I, I could imagine, and you do, and you write about this, that there's resistance to it, surely from teachers who see encroachment on their profession, perhaps students who might be resistant to that. Uh, like, you know, today we think of D.A.R.E. oftentimes almost in parody. You know, we make fun of it a little bit. But you write that um, many students did seem to be genuinely receptive to it, or at least to that sort of developing relationship with officers. So could you just talk a little bit about the receiving end of this program from the perspective of students, teachers, maybe parents as well? Yeah, totally. Um, and that's the thing that was pretty surprising to me is I was kind of expecting oh, all these parents and all these teachers and everyone's going to be like opposed to this program. But obviously, like if we think about the logic of it, like by the early 90s to the mid 90s, there's in 75% of school districts. You don't get into 75% of school districts if it's like widespread opposition, right? And so the early and the early piece, and we can talk about because by the 90s, you start to see a lot of pushback. But early on, there's some questioning by teachers, right, of like our police officers. Do we want police officers in our school teaching? What is that? What message does that send? Um, is it encroaching right on on some of the the kind of obligations of, or responsibilities of teachers and their their expertise? But some teachers are also like, hands like, let them do it. I don't want to talk to these kids about drugs, right? Yeah. And then there's sort of the kind of anecdotal stuff I saw once in a while, which is like. And teachers liked having a classroom, a, a, a class period free that they didn't have to teach, right? So there's that kind of push and pull. Administrators bought into it as well because they're like, look at the look at these police officers. They're playing with the kids at recess. So the kind of PR and the the messaging that Dare I think was trying to um, use to get educators and others on board really worked, right? And the thing that we have to realize is like fifth graders. Early on when they're like, because then by later you start to see like when it expands to high schools in Los Angeles or um, by the 90s, you start getting kids who have gone through the program and are interviewed later. And they're like, yeah, that didn't really work. We made fun of the dare officer behind his back or, you know, I went at home and I was smoking pot in my dare shirt. You know, you see some of those stories start to develop where there is this kind of resistance and parody and all of that that does come. So there is, I don't want to paint it as like this picture of all these students love these D.A.R.E. officers, but it, it kind of develops over time, I would argue. 
And parents too, right? In this eight in 1980s, at least according to a lot of the dare literature and some of the the studies are like, we don't know how to talk to our kids about drugs either, right? And so they're like, so they dare develops a parent program as well, in which they're training parents kind of how to parent. So I'm kind of like, what is this? I, I make kind of an argument about this is just another way for now police are also teaching parents the best way to parent. Um, and that gets into a, a piece of the argument about the, the project where I'm like, dare is fitting in with this um, kind of cultural turn and emphasis on family values um, in in the 1980s and 1990s. And so parents initially like it, but by the, by the 1990s, you get parent groups starting to form called Parents Against Dare. And those groups, surprising to me, were not groups that were like anti-police themselves, but they were sort of more conservative libertarian a little bit where they were like, we don't want Big Brother in our school. They're going to, or they would be saying things like, yeah, those dare officers are telling those kids that there's, that there's going to be choices and they need to make the right choice. And they're like, no, my kids don't, will not be doing drugs at all. Right. And so they kind of have a more hard line. So you get parent groups forming in this parent, again, parents against dare organization that kind of come out as dare spreads. Right. And they're like, why are the police here? What is the government trying to to do, right? Are they surveilling us? Um, and some of that fear is actually manifested because you start to get kids telling their dare officers about parental drug use or other things that leads to parents getting arrested, right? As the kids kind of become the eyes and ears of the police and snitch on their parents effectively. And so there's this really complicated, so that the question about reception is, is a really interesting one. And it gets really complicated because Students like it at, at times. Um, teachers oftentimes are supportive of it. Educators, politicians love it because I think mm -hmm. it really gives them a way to say, look at all the things we're trying to do, right, about positively about this drug problem. We're not just arresting everyone. We're working with kids and police. And so politicians become really involved in it. Um, that all changes in the 90s when starting in about 1992, 93, you start to get a wave of um, social scientists evaluating the program and finding out that it doesn't prevent drug use um, with kids. And so at that point, politicians start to waver, right? Because they, mm -hmm. they can't make the argument, right? And they start to be like, well, this program, <laughs> we might not want to support it as much because it's shown to be ineffective. So, so there's a change over time with that as well. So there's a there's a ton in there, and and it, it it sort of foreshadows a few other questions I have about the political utility of Dare, uh, the eventual research showing that it wasn't actually very effective at preventing drug use. But mm. before we get to some of those, I I just want to pause for a moment on the remarkable pace at which Dare spread. Uh, so if I can like pull some numbers from the book that you that you write. It's when it began, it was 10 officers in 50 LA schools. And in the next year, it was in 110 elementary schools, or sorry, it's by the third year, it was in 110 elementary schools at nine junior highs with 58 officers. By 10 years in, it was in all 50 states with 5,000 officers trained to teach the curriculum, reaching four and a half million students, more than 70% of the nation's school districts. And then finally, and this is really amazing, by 2000, 
40,000 officers around the world were trained to teach DARE, reaching 36 million U.S. students and an additional 10 million in 50 other countries, uh, which is the international piece I never knew anything about. So those numbers are just amazing to me. How can we explain that, that spread? It, it, it's, it's just amazing, and especially the international piece of yeah. it, which is a fascinating sort of uh, piece of the story as well. Yeah, no, exactly. I didn't, you know, the same thing when I looked at those numbers. It's like, whoa, this is like, you know, and if you looked, at, I have a, there's a couple graphs in the book that kind of show this kind of exponent, this kind of moment, this exponential increase. So it happens, the spread of DARE and the expansion of the program, it's kind of multifaceted, like a lot of this, but initially it starts because, and I write about this, the plan that the LAPD and LAUSD set up in the summer of 83, they actually have a plan for expansion. They have a piece in there where they're like, we are planning to expand. This is how we're going to try to do it. They're actually already talking about hiring a PR firm very early on to be like, are we going to need public relations? What are we going to, you know, we need to promote this program. We're going to, so they're talking about and cognizant of, of the desire to expand, at least to all LA schools, right? And they, you get the LAPD and LAUSD pushing for the expansion in Los Angeles first, right? And so they get the city council on board. They get others sort of promoting the program. Um, and the the piece that's key is that Daryl Gates, the chief of police of the LAPD, and some of his kind of the other pro-DARE um, officials in the police department, most notably a, a, a man named Glenn Levant, who was kind of also really at the center of the origins of D.A.R.E., he was involved in a lot of kind of community crime prevention work in the city, um, as well as kind of became the became the D.A.R.E. guy as well, because he helps establish the, the, the D.A.R.E. American nonprofit later. But these police, this police brass, Gates, Levant, and others are like proselytizing. They are going out, they're going to law enforcement conferences, they're going, you know, and they are saying, promoting the program through law enforcement networks, they're promoting the program in Los Angeles. And so they are very quickly pushing the program to other officers. And within a, a year, two years of the founding of DARE, the establishment of it, you get police departments from all across the country starting to send an officer to dare to, to, to excuse me to Los Angeles to say can we be trained in this too and there's some other evidence and I write about this a little is that Gates is writing the White House the Reagan White House in 84 85 like he's writing he's saying we have this program you know can you all support this as well so the Reagans get in on it um, a little bit later Nancy Reagan Ronald Reagan and others the president uh, George H.W. Bush, vice president, and then president all, are all all become big supporters. But I argue in the book, it, it is largely facilitated through these law enforcement networks, right, of Gates and others. And as then as it grows, they're applying for grants, right, through um, the Department of Justice and the Bureau of Justice Assistance, right, which kind of evolves out of the, the, the demise of the LEAA and stuff. Um, and so they're applying for grants to develop training centers around the country. So they're using that law enforcement network, they're using federal criminal justice funds, and they're getting buy-in from the Bureau of Justice Assistance and others who are like, oh, this is a good new program. Let's promote it. And so they come out with these briefing books 
that are like an invitation to Project Dare, which they send then to other law enforcement agencies to be like, here's what Dare is, here's this curriculum, here's how you can get trained, you go to Los Angeles, all. So they set up this whole training structure as well. So it's this law enforcement ecosystem that starts to develop that then becomes the kind of self-fulfilling where all these officers are getting trained in Dare. Um, the other piece of this is by the late 80s and early 90s is the Anti-Drug Abuse Acts of 1986 and 1988, and then some amendments to those in 89 and, and 90 and 91. Um, they have provisions them called the Safe and Drug-Free Schools Act. Those are part of those anti-drug acts. And they start to allocate money for prevention through those, and so the prevention and education. And the amendments to those in 89 start to mention things like, here's all this money that we're going to allocate for drug prevention. One of the things we want to see is officer-led programs, police officer-led programs in schools. So they start to actually hint at the ways that DARE is influencing this legislative commitment right, of funding. And so I think one of the reasons why you see kind of in some of these graphs a real growth in 91, 90, 91, 92 is because it's at that point where, and by the early 90s, some of the amendments um, actually mentioned DARE by name as like an, as a model program. And so it's like at that point where you have law enforcement networks, you have all these political supporters, and then you get legislation providing funding for prevention to states across the country that actually name things like police officer-led programs or DARE itself. And so all these programs, then all these school districts and law enforcement are like, if we want to get access to that money, really the only police-led education program at the time is DARE. So they start to adopt it all and it grows. And then the international dimension is that, is DARE America is the nonprofit that they, they set up to kind of oversee DARE. They form a, thing, a, a, a wing of that called Dare Inter it's Dare Worldwide and Dare International. They kind of shift the name at one point, but so they have a Dare International program where they're pushing this program internationally as well, right? And actually, as early as the the mid to late '80s, they're starting to push it in places like New Zealand and 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 stuff like that. Um, and so and that's coming from. Gates and the other Dare America people, right? And they're like, we're going to spread this not just nationally, but around the world. Um, and so, you know, in dozens of countries, right? But, and, and they're having, and the other thing that helps facilitate this too is then they start holding conferences. So they hold an annual Dare Officers Conference where officers come together, they share ideas, they share new tips, right? And so they're bringing those networks of Dare officers together as well as um, creating officer associations, right? So their officers are like grouping together and, 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 and connecting to one another as well and forming these, these associations pretty much in every, in most states who, that have dare. So it's all the, it's this kind of multifaceted thing that just then allows it to grow and grow, right? And it's, and then there's a whole piece about the funding of it, which I'm sure you have questions about, which kind of facilitates this as well, um, because they're get, getting federal funding, um, there's a nonprofit arm where they're this the Dare America is doing a ton of fundraising and they get a lot of marketing heft behind it. So they're like, it's going to be a cheap adoption, right? It only costs like twelve dollars per kid to uh, to adopt the Dare program because it's it's so called cheap, not really cheap, but they say it is, right? Yeah. 
that the story underlines, I, th I think, so clearly the extent to which D.A.R.E. did not spread just on its own merits or sort of just naturally, but that it was, it, it, there were stakeholders who drove it forward and they, they very intentionally wanted to spread it. And there are at least two stakeholders that stand out in the book. One is politicians who see aligning with D.A.R.E. as politically advantageous. And the other one is corporations who see... Yep. Fund funding and sponsoring there as, I don't know, advantageous from a marketing standpoint, I suppose. Um, it, so there's two questions built in there. Um, but I guess I'm asking if you could talk a little bit about why is there so politically useful for, for politicians to associate themselves with? And then why are, why are corporations driven to do the same? And if I could tack on sort of a, another question at the end of that. It, does that tell us something about the political and culture, you, cultural utility of policing um, sort of in a broader context? That I mean, sort of zooms out to the 30,000 foot view. Right. Yeah. No. So I think for the politicians, what you start to see um, is it allows them to sort of pre present themselves as taking this kind of proactive, positive approach for kids. Right. And they're like, and be pro-police at the same time. Right. So, so they're using it as a way to be like, we support law enforcement. We're like, but we're also going to be like pro kid and we're going to fund these programs. We're going to support them. We're going to, they start to pass all these national dare day acts. Like, so every year they're saying like national dare day and it allows them to have these PR moments, right. With the police and kids in their dare shirts and all of those things. So it gives them, I think that kind of political utility to show that they're taking action to prevent drug use and not just say we're just out here like promoting arrest and incarceration but we're gonna we're gonna really do something for kids to to, to try to prevent them from using drugs right which i think was really appealing in the 80s and into the 90s especially given the media context right when you have on the nightly news all these stories of the so-called quote drug gangs and violence and look what's going to happen if your kid uses drugs once right they're going to become these addicts, right? And so, it, so there, so there's this media landscape that's shaping, I think, parents and others. And then politicians are like, "Well, look at what we're doing. Like, we're going to have this program. It's pro police. We're not going to arrest. It's going to be about. We're not arresting kids. It's so they use. I think it becomes really um, politically useful for them in that sense, right? Because it was seen as kind of a political winner. No one wanted to come out and bash Dare as a politician because everyone thought it worked. <laughs> until they start to, until that terrain shifts, right? Yeah. So it's like, so they see it, I think, in that context, right? And it allows them to say, you know, we're pushing also this program that's police-led and it's promoting the messages of zero tolerance. It's promoting the message of personal responsibility, right? Which is kind of, I think, in that political context of the, of the Reagan era and into the early 90s, right, of, this is about personal responsibility. This is zero tolerance, right? So, so it, it feeds into that messaging as well, right? That Reagan's just say no program, you know, Nancy Reagan's just say no and all that. Right. So it's moral poverty and things like right, that. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And so it's like, okay. So I think it's, so it's doing that sort of work. And then the corporation, there's a sort of corporate social responsibility movement that kind of starts in the 80s where they're like, we want to be 
we want to be sponsoring these things. Like, look at us, you know, look at our goodwill as a corporate citizen, <laughs> you know, as they're coming under a fire, right? And having kind of critiqued, right? As just these profit makers. And so they start to promote it um, in a whole range of ways through fundraising and stuff like that. It, it, they get in with the police. But I write about it, you know, in a slightly different way as well. And then I suggest that some of these corporations are seeing it as an investment in their future workforce, right? So they're like, well, we we don't want to, we need a drug-free workforce in the future. So we're going to fund this really popular program. We'll look good. And we're going to create disciplined, obedient, right? Drug-free workers that will, that will, you know, just be productive for us in the future. So they're kind of, I think they're kind of, some of them are thinking that way as well, right? And then of course, it's good marketing for a lot of Right. So like the first national sponsor is KFC. Right. And then you get Yogi Bear and like Hanna-Barbera Productions, right, becomes um, like a mascot, Dare Bear Yogi. They have a press conference in, a, in in L.A. where Daryl Gates is on stage with like this big Yogi Bear. And so there, I think it becomes then this cultural messaging where then it gets into things like cartoons and others where it's then also shaping those messages. Um, and I think what this all gets at to your last question, which I think is a great one, is how, at least in this 80s and 90s moment, even as there's this huge kind of growing, I would argue, especially in Los Angeles, not not huge, but there's this growing anti-police movement, right, around the war on drugs, especially in communities of color and elsewhere. But what it allows, what it shows us is that at least at the time, the police, police are whether it's corporations or politicians, supporting law enforcement had become a really kind of like a like a winner, right? It was like it, it was a kind of sign of the legitimacy and strength um, and support for the police in American society, right? Coming 20 years after the 1960s and early 70s when you had urban rebellion, lots of anti-police messaging and movements, right? 20 years later, the police had repositioned themselves in a way where it's like, oh, no, we want to buy in on this, right? Corporations, politicians, and, and others. It shows. And then, of course, there's the turning points of like you get 1992 in Los Angeles. Then, you know, you get these kind of turning shifts in the 90s where there's renewed critiques of the police. Not that they had gone away, right? Which I argue in my first book, they, they never had gone away. Um, but so I think it, it does get us a sense of the ways police had become really powerful entities across, across the nation you know, in and the and one of the reasons why Dare then becomes this thing that everyone wants to support, right? Partially yeah. because it is about police and this kind of drug prevention message. And there, there's something there also about the the broad spectrum of politics that it can apply to, also, right? Because obviously you have hardline or law and order types that we typically associate with the right. Um, but it, it made that sort of politics more palatable coming from the Democrats or the left as well, right? Yeah, I mean, it was supported by politicians on all, you know, on on all sides, right? From Reagan, you know, every Reagan to Clinton, right? Clinton, Clinton, and it's his um, 1996 State of the Union, I believe, mentions Dare officers, right? So it's like, so it gives politicians on either side to be like, look, we support the police, we 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 work on this. So it shows that kind of bipartisan argument that a lot of police and other historians have made about, you know, buying into the the war on drugs was a bipartisan um, initiative. 
right? Pushed forward by people like Biden, right? President, yeah, or at that time, you know, it was a president, but, you know, former uh, Senator Biden, right? And so you get all, and and, and Charles Rangel in New York and others are, are promoting, because some of them are like, we really do want prevention. So they're pushing it. And D.A.R.E. had positioned itself in a way that it was the, like, most popular program that had this ready-made law enforcement network, as I mentioned earlier. So, so, it gave, so it is that kind of bipartisan support pushes it forward. You get Democratic mayors and cities adopting it, right, mm -hmm. alongside others. Um, and so it's, it becomes that, um, I think, is it within that context, right, within that kind of larger uh, pattern we, we can identify of bipartisan support for the carceral state or mass incarceration that, we, that historians have argued, right? It was not just a conservative reactionary um, move. So eventually there is the, criti the criticism, as you mentioned earlier, does begin to mount. Um, you have a chapter called Just Say No to Dare, which focuses on researchers who exposed its ineffectiveness and it increasingly comes under some scrutiny. Uh, so what happened to Dare uh, in those years when it when its ineffectiveness gets exposed and and, and why did it continue to persist nevertheless? And and I guess the, the final bit to that question is, is how should we think about its legacy? Um, as it, it never totally shudders, but um, as it sort of comes down from its apogee a little bit. Yeah, it's kind of a fall, so to speak. Um, so what starts to happen? So Dare, in the, in the early years, in the 80s, the LAPD had contracted with a group um, to do evaluations, early evaluations. And so you get a series in like 84, 85, 86, some of these evaluations that come out that are overwhelmingly positive. And they're just like, this thing is like the silver bullet almost, right? Like kids stop doing drugs, they love the police, right? All of those sorts of things. Um, and then you start to get a few independent, like outside evaluations from like social scientists starting to say, okay, it sort of works, but we, we, need to, we need to research it more. We need to have sort of more longitudinal studies. And what you start to then get is in the early 90s, um, there's a group out of the research triangle, and they are actually contracted by the Bureau of Justice Assistance and others with DARE's kind of support to do a meta-analysis of all these studies that have been done. And are like, can you... Like, and by meta-analysis, meaning they go back to all these studies and they evaluate them all and kind of try to summarize them, basically. Um, and they're, so they're doing this, like, big project into DARE. And they come out and they're like, once we've kind of gone in and interrogated all these studies, they're like, DARE doesn't work. It doesn't stop drug use or it doesn't prevent drug use. And that comes out in, like, 92, 93. Um, there's a big conference in San Diego where there's a whole series of panels all just about this study in D.A.R.E. And you get at this moment, it's just Glenn Levant, the D.A.R.E. America and former LAPD um, officer is at the conference and is like arguing with the social scientists in the panel. <laughs> and so, but they're like, you know, all the evidence shows it might be a good project in terms of trying to get the pol you know, police legitimacy in, with kids, but it doesn't actually do what it purports to do, which is stop drug use. And then you start to get more and more studies confirming that. Um, there's a whole debate, right? Dare America and the and the the group that promotes Dare go on the offensive when this first study, this this research triangle study, comes out. They try to stop it from being published. 
Um, they try to, you know, intimidate some of the officers, at least um, allegedly try to intimidate them as the stories that I have that I have heard. Right. And I've interviewed many of these social scientists who were at that, um, who wrote these studies. And so they dare is like I mean, dare America is going on the offensive, which I think is one reason that even as negative publicity and negative reports come out, they start to try to push back almost immediately, which continues and on. And then, so that kind of goes back and forth for a few years in the mid nineties. Um, Dare sometimes concedes and is like, oh, well, we've revised the curriculum. So those old studies are actually invalid, right? Because they're not actually studying the most recent iteration right, of the curriculum. Um, and, and then you get the new studies and there's a big one um, in 95 or 96 um, that comes out. And it was a study that showed that among suburban kids, drug use actually went up <laughs> after going through dare right so it raises all these quest these these kind of fears around like oh these like suburban innocent victims right are are you know and innocent kids are they're they're going to use more drugs if they have this this program right and that really scares people again um and i didn't mention this earlier but there's this whole racialized history of dare as well right where they're playing on all these tropes of of gangs and the the need for for police officers because of the kind of racialized drug war right in schools um but so by the mid 90s then like these these kind of high profile studies come out and it's at that point where then you start to see some of the politicians at the local level mayors and others start to say oh all these studies show that this doesn't work we want to put our money into programs that work to prevent drug use and so a few cities start dropping the program, Seattle, Salt Lake City as well, right where I grew up after I had done the program, obviously. Yeah. Um, and so you, and then as that starts to happen, you also then get a moment when Congress members and others call for drug prevention programs have to show that they have scientifically backed evidence of efficacy. And so that comes down through Congress by the late 90s. And so D.A.R.E. is kind of coming under fire from all of these things because they're not on these lists of like an effective program based on scientific research, right, and all of that. And then so what they do then is they work through the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and others. They're kind of meeting D.A.R.E. America. They're, they're kind of being brokered. The, the Dare America people will meet with all these social, some of these critics, the social scientists. And what they do is Dare America agrees, okay, we'll change. We'll adopt mm -hmm. a new curriculum that's scientifically proven. It goes through a kind of development process over a couple of years in the late 90s and then gets relaunched this kind of new Dare program in the early 2000s. Um, you know, I mean, Dare had been, a, it's not like it went away when they were doing that. They were continually Dare. Um, and it's in that, you know, and so they launched this new curriculum that's supposedly scientifically backed, right, to kind of relaunch the program. But by that moment, um, and the, I mean, the key thing is they never stop using police officers, teachers is one of the yeah. arguments I made, is they start to revise the curriculum kind of over and over again, especially in the 2000s. Um, and so they're... But by that point, the early 2000s, it had kind of taken a hit, right, from this all of this negative publicity from the 90s of, of it not being effective. And so schools had started to pull away from it. 
school districts didn't want to use the program if it wasn't going to qualify right with the federal funders as as scientifically proven um because they wanted to be able to show that they were using an accepted program um, and so it's kind of on its way out then you get some of the long-standing um dare america officials like glenn levant leaves the organization there's a closing of some of the regional training centers in the early 2000s so that training infrastructure goes away and so it kind of then goes into a kind of low point um by the you know mid 2000s 2010s right they're kind of like it's kind of at a low point but it still exists it's still there um, and it's and then they launch a new curriculum called keeping it real um, and they actually are borrowing curriculum from others but what they're doing is they're plugging a curriculum into this law enforcement network that they had mm -hmm. developed because they're like we still have all these police officers who are trained they can be the teachers um, and now and so they've partnered with others to develop this new curriculum keeping it real and so dare it still exists right you can go to the website it's still in schools um i get google alerts every single day about some newspaper article about a dare graduation or something <laughs> to that effect and but it's not in the same kind of cultural space but it's still promoting this kind of law enforcement police-led drug prevention education right um and so its legacies the kind of legacy i think of it it's not that it's just like oh it still exists right but that it shows us um you know this kind of central role that dare played in american politics culture and society in in the 1990s and 2000s um it continues to be as you kind of mentioned parody it continues to be used right as a kind of cultural mm -hmm. reference point um for parody um even you know to this day and i write about how like there's kind of a, a graduate assistant of mine found all these TikToks of people using like what dare did not teach me about all these kind of you know using it as a, as a meme and parody there um you know you get um uh, serena williams husband right is yeah. using a dare shirt at the u.s open to kind of openly troll i mean maria maria sharapova right when she comes back from doping a sure. doping violation right so it continues to kind of be a cultural reference point um, for a lot of people and it's used. And so that it's kind of in the, in the ether that way. And I think that legacy is important because a lot of those critiques of dare, even though they're like parodying, right. Actually are kind of political critiques of like mm -hmm. this program that was police led, that was meant that was based on zero tolerance, right? Like that's not the solution to drug use, right? There's kind of an implicit critique there. Right. And that's why in the book I talk about like, this doesn't mean that drug education writ large is wrong. Right. But then yeah. there are better ways of doing it. Right. Like the Drug Policy Alliance and their safety first curriculum, harm reduction, all of those sorts of pieces um, of, of alternatives. But it shows us, I think, as kind of a back to your question as well about the centrality of like police to American culture and society over the last you know, 20, 30 years. Right. It's like the police are everywhere. Right. And yeah. they're still there in these dare classrooms. Right. And there's still arguments being made about we need police to teach these courses, right? Not everywhere, but they're, they're still making that argument, right? And, you know, we've seen the moment where post-2020, there were all these calls to take police out of schools. And we've seen a lot of schools say, no, we're going to put school resources back, resource officers back in schools, mm -hmm. right? And so I think we see, I think Derek can tell us a lot about all of that and how the police became normalized. 
right. in all these areas of life, especially schools and for kids. It's a fantastic point to end on. There's a ton in this book that we weren't able to get to. I, the list is is very long. Asset forfeiture funding, DARE program, more on sort of some of the weird corporate sponsorship stuff, squad car design contest. There's fantastic pictures. There's Folks, you're going to have to buy the book uh, to to get all that, but there's there's a lot in here, and it's a really incredible piece of scholarship. So thank you for that. Um, our our final question is always: uh, Do you have something new that you're thinking about or or beginning to work on uh, coming down the pipeline? Yes, no, no. So well, thank you um, for the conversation. First of all, it was really really um, nice to talk about the book. Uh, the new project is I'm writing a history of the LAPD's Rampart scandal, which was a scandal in Los Angeles in the late 90s in which the anti-gang units called CRASH or Community Resources Against Street Hoodlums um, in the Rampart Division um, were, had, were found to be stealing cocaine from evidence rooms um, using it on, you know, uh, so stealing, stealing drugs, um, using it on the street, you know, in terms of, uh, to, to facilitate drug buys and things like that for arrest, uh, framing people, um, for crimes, um, engaging in kind of violent conduct. Um, and that scandal erupts, um, it leads to the kind of a, a national spotlight on the LAPD. It leads to federal um, uh, a federal suit bringing that leads to a consent decree, which the LAPD is then under a consent decree for a decade. Um, it leads to the disbanding of these crash units entirely, right? And so it's so this this new project, a new book that I'm working on, will be a history of that scandal, and then also kind of a story about how that led to this kind of development and origin, what I call kind of origins of like 21st century policing, because what comes out of it is this consent decree policing. Uh, uh, Bratton comes to be chief of LAPD at that time from New York. So it's like the, the real expansion of CompStat and that sort of policing and all this other kind of data-driven stuff that then kind of comes there and gets incubated in LA and goes everywhere else too. So so that's the new project is thinking about kind of late 90s, early 21st century policing through through the Rampart scandal in Los Angeles. Well, that sounds like a fantastic project uh, and a really important piece of work. And we look forward to seeing it down the road. I want to thank you again for joining us today and sharing your work. Again, Max Felker Cantor's forthcoming book is Dare to Say No, Policing and the War on Drugs in Schools. And it will be out in April with the University of North Carolina Press. Dr. Felker Cantor, thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you for having me.